It's been said that the only thing we learn from history is that men never learn from history. For us here at home, things haven't really changed much except that we're at home more than usual. For our son, school is the same. I mean, before the uh, restrictions were put in place, we already had our boy enrolled in a homeschool program, so we didn't have to do much in terms of transitioning. We we just kept on with the program as is. And for us, it's been such a fun experience to be able to be actively involved in our son's education. To be his first teachers has really allowed us to shape and be quite creative with um, the learning process for him. And to see him grow and and to progress daily has been so incredibly rewarding, and, and he's enjoying it. It's also taken us back to our own early school days, in a sense, because we don't, we don't see his experience, uh, or, or we don't want his experience to be stale and uh, a sort of one-size-fits-all paradigm, because, I mean, much of public school programming in general is, is standardized. Uh, and, and it leaves us very little room for variation. And but 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 with homeschooling, we tailor make the program to fit his needs, his own natural gifts, and and his interests. So, so as parents, we've been learning quite a bit and relearning actually uh, many subjects and facts that we hadn't thought about since our grade school days. Now we're you know we're both university professors my wife and I so education is really in our blood. And of course teaching secondary education is a whole other ball game entirely. Because as our son learns we learn as well. And I'm I'm not going to say that it it hasn't had its challenges for us as parents it has. But we've been enjoying the whole process we really have. And the point the point I'm trying to make is, is that as much as we might think we know because of our age, our, our qualifications, our education, our own experience, that the journey of learning is really one of a lifetime. The moment we lean on authority arguments, meaning we make decisions based solely on the conclusions made by so-called experts in their fields, without any testing and questioning of their findings, then, then we really lose the greatest freedom we have. That of free thought. One of the definitions of life is, I think, therefore I am. When knowledge becomes a commodity only to be held by those of the academy, those that are in this club, then free thought is made into a commodity which requires a purchased membership in order for any idea that is put forth to even be considered as valid. The suppression of any knowledge of information in a free society, whether true or highly questionable, is itself the robbing of human worth. And why is that? Why? Because if we hand over the control of the flow of information to highly qualified gatekeepers, let's say, then what are we doing in, in, terms, of, in terms of our own worth? We're, we're, we're giving up the ability to study 
and make decisions on our own without these, without our ideas needing qualification from the academy. It's a dangerous line to walk on. But this very act of suppressing and filtering information or knowledge becomes one of the factors that has determined the fall of nations throughout human history. And this is especially relevant for us now in the present because nothing lasts forever. And many in our society today believe that we are at a tipping point. Our way of of life, though it is based on self-evident principles that are undeniable, are criticized and even hated, not just by those who live outside of this country, but even by those who live in it. And, and, and then that's when you have to ask yourself, how can, how, can, uh, how can one come to hate liberty and its principles so much, especially by those who are on the benefiting end of living in a country that respects human worth? Are those values uh, always lift up to by Americans, either by citizens or or, or even by elected officials? No, we, we know that. They, these values are not always lived up to. But, but is this reason enough to want to tear down our way of life? But here again is the issue, the depravity of man. And what becomes so incredibly laughable is that other men who criticize men who are in power think that they can do better all the while forgetting that the very thing they're criticizing is endemic to their own nature, this human depravity. None of us are free of the tendency towards greed, pride, and power. And this is why when we think of solutions, it can't, it can't be in taking power out of the hands of one group of men and then handing over that power to another group of men who say they can do it better. And that's where even I get so tired of, of this election process. I have to be honest. And, and, and listen, don't get me wrong. I, I treasure my right to vote. But there are times that it just feels like another illusion. And not because of the system, so to speak, right? Uh, the the system of government that we that are that is uh, for the people and by the people, but because of the men who run it. But this story isn't new. The fate of nations has something to tell us for for uh, has something to tell us today in our time. We've already spent. Uh, some time uh, in previous episodes talking about, uh, let's say, the the Empire of Rome. Well, take some of the greatest nations in human history, others like Assyria, Persia, uh, Greece, the Arab and and um, Mameluke empires, the Ottoman Empire, and even the British Empire. At one time or another, these nations were the ruling empires of the then known world. They rose. They thrived and they flourished. But when they ultimately fell 
and were conquered by other nations, the conditions leading up to their demise always seemed to be the same. And the most curious thing is that our nation now seems to be in this sunset time period. And I know that that sounds ominous, but I really do think we're in a sunset period. This uh, same sunset period in which these other nations found themselves in before their their own fall. And so the questions come, can we avoid it? Do we save it? Because the writing is on the wall. Sir John Glubb, an author of 17 books that he published uh, mainly on the region of the Middle East, writes a very compelling uh, look at the nations of the world in an essay that he entitled The Fate of Empires. He spent most of his career in the British military overseas. And one of the first things he uncovers through his own analysis is the duration of time that each nation lasts from rise to fall. And so the nations that he looks at are some of the nations we've already mentioned, Assyria, uh, Persia, Greece, uh, the Roman Empire, of course, both Republic, the Roman Republic and the Roman Empire, um, the Arab Empire, the Mameluke Empire, Ottoman Empire, um, the Romanovs in Russia, and and then Britain. And what's, what's curious about this is um, he lists uh, the years in which these empires uh, were in power. And what we find is that the average span of life of each one of these empires is roughly around 230 years or so. So the margin between this average isn't really that large. And so the obvious question is, how is it that every one of these empires are so close in lifespan? The largest span of time uh, in terms of uh, lasting power is the Mameluke Empire, which lasted about 267 years before it fell. And when one begins to do the math based on these figures in relation to our nation, we're right about the time when the alarm is going off already, giving us the warning signs of all of it going the way of the dodo. 2020 brings us to 244 years of being a sovereign nation. So, are we going to be the ones to change history? Now, what Glove comes up with in his research is that each nation follows a similar line of progression and stages, which he identifies as these. The Age of Pioneers... The age of conquests, the age of commerce, the age of affluence, the age of intellect, and the age of decadence. Again, these are all stages in which, in which each empire goes through from rise to progression 
to growth, and then to finally its fall. The wealth which seems almost without effort to pour into the country enables the commercial classes to grow immensely rich, he says. How to spend all this money becomes a problem to the wealthy business community. He goes on to say, Art, architecture, and luxury find rich patrons. Splendid municipal uh, buildings and wide streets lend dignity and beauty to the wealthy areas of great cities. The rich merchants build themselves palaces, and money is invested in communications, highways, bridges, railways, or hotels, according to the varied patterns of the ages. So this is sort of his introduction of how each empire unfolds, develops over time. Now, he talks about affluence. Well, with affluence, there also comes vice. The focus on the individual, while crucial to the foundation of liberty, also has a downside because we sometimes forget our neighbors, especially when we begin to look inward. Now, he goes on to say, The first direction in which wealth injures the nation is a moral one. Money replaces honor and adventure as the objective of the best young men. Moreover, men do not normally seek to make money for their country or their community, but for themselves. Gradually and almost imperceptibly, the age of affluence silences the voice of duty. The object of the young and the ambitious is no longer honor or service, but cash. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on the first few stages that that he mentions, which are the age, uh, the ages of conquest, or I'm sorry, the ages of pioneers, conquests, and commerce. These are pretty much, I think, um, uh, a given in terms of understanding. And and in terms of pioneers, conquests, and commerce, is that most of these nations had a time of of travel and discovery. Uh, in, in which they would conquer other nations through wars and, and you know, great um, battles. And once then they, they conquered other nations, they would establish commerce. And that commerce would then bring in wealth. And that's what brings us then to the age of affluence, a time when wealth begins uh, to grow within that empire or nation. So this is what, this is what we're talking about now. Now, um, he goes on to talk about uh, how this affluence, this wealth, begins to affect society. Parents and students, he says, alike seek the educational qualifications which will command the highest salaries. He uh, then goes on uh, to talk about the Arab moralist named Ghazali, okay, who uh, lived uh, between 1058 and 1111. And Ghazali complains in these very same words of the lowering of objectives in the declining Arab world of his own time. Students, he says, no longer attend college to acquire learning and virtue, but to obtain those qualifications which will enable them to grow rich. The same situation is everywhere evident among us in the West today, Glub says. Greed for money is gradually replacing duty and public service. Indeed, the change might be summarized as being from service to selfishness. 
The great wealth of the nation is no longer needed to supply the mere necessities or even the luxuries of life. Ample funds are available also for the pursuit of knowledge. And knowledge is power after all, isn't it? And so knowledge must now be sold in order for it to be shared with the populace. And obviously, Glub is referring to the patron the the patronage of education. So government loans. Now he goes on to to say there are so many things in human life which are not dreamt of in our popular philosophy. The spread of knowledge seems to be the most beneficial of human activities, and yet every period of decline is characterized by this expansion of intellectual activity. As in the case of the Athenians, intellectualism leads to discussion, debate, and argument, such as is typical of the Western nations today. Debates in elected assemblies or local committees in articles, in the press, or in interviews on television. Endless and incessant talking. Men are interminably different, and intellectual arguments rarely lead to agreement. Thus, public affairs drift from bad to worse, amid an unceasing cacophony of argument. But this constant dedication to discussion seems to destroy the power of action. Amid a babble of talk, the ship drifts on to the rocks. You know, it's it's so curious. It's it's as if Glub is writing this as a response to what we're living in right now. Because this essay is written or was written in the 1970s. That's a lifetime ago. But certainly back then there had been already great shifts in culture between the 1950s and the 1970s. It's and 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 you see it in an explosion of new art and in entertainment and music, new fashions, and a generation proclaiming free love with no religion or government. It's a postmodernist's dream. And here Glob gives us a prognosis of sorts due to uh, the intellectuals of our times. So here he states, Perhaps the most dangerous byproduct of the age of intellect is the unconscious growth of the idea that the human brain can solve the problems of the world. Even on the low level of practical affairs, this is patently untrue. Any small human activity, the local bowling alleys or, or the ladies' luncheon clubs, requires for its survival a measure of self-sacrifice and service on the part of its members. In a wider national sphere, the survival of the nation depends basically on the loyalty and self-sacrifice of the citizens. The impression that the situation can be saved by mental cleverness without unselfishness or human self-dedication can only lead to collapse. Indeed, it often appears in individuals that the head and the heart are natural rivals. This is still glove-talking. The brilliant but cynical intellectual appears at the opposite end of the spectrum from the emotional self-sacrifice of the hero or the martyr. Yet there are times when the perhaps unsophisticated self-dedication of the hero is more essential than the sarcasms of the clever. We are fortunate if these rivalries are fought out in Parliament, but sometimes such hatreds are carried into the streets or into industry in the form of strikes, demonstrations, boycotts, and similar activities. 
True to the normal course followed by nations in decline, internal differences are not reconciled in an attempt to save the nation. On the contrary, internal rivalries become more acute as the nation becomes weaker. It has been shown, Glubb says, that normally the rise and fall of great nations are due to internal reasons alone. Ten generations of human beings suffice to transform the hardy and, and, and enterprising pioneer into the captious citizen of the welfare state. There are political schools of history slanted to discredit the actions of our past leaders in order to support modern political movements. In all these cases, history is not an attempt to ascertain the truth, but a system of propaganda devoted to the furtherance of modern projects or the gratification of national vanity. My goodness gracious. It's like he's writing this from our perspective now. Or not even a national vanity, because he talks about vanity, right? But collective vanity, based on a type of virtue signaling that uh, really echoes back to the French Revolution, that sees public enemies on all sides, and the result isn't just a draining of the swamp, using a modern phrase, it's a complete erasing of society. Kill religion, kill politicians, kill the government, kill the establishment, kill the classes, kill the whole order of things, and have a complete reset. But what does that reset look like on the other side? where we're looking down into an unending darkness. This current crisis has only intensified a um, polarization that has been on the rise really since after the 9-11 attacks. Yeah, we, we came together for a short time, but we quickly forgot our loss, our vulnerability, and the ties that truly bind us together. And... And like these empires of old, we've been lulled into a sleep of complacency that life just goes on. We pick up the pieces, we, we rebuild, and we move on. We build higher, we build taller, and we build stronger. And, and you know, <laughs> that isn't a bad thing. To look towards the good of society, it's, that's not wrong. But, but it can become self-seeking. It, it can become a defiance that is detrimental. It can also become inhuman. You know, just this morning, I, I read an article in the Wall Street Journal challenging us not to forget that on the other side of the fence, there are actually people dealing with real problems. The article is written by Peggy Noonan, and she observes that the various things we've committed to, like masks and social distancing, the, the hand washing, 
have proven to be positive and useful. But she also notes this, quote, We have to enter each day armored up. At the same time, we can't allow alertness to become exhaustion. We can't let an appropriate sense of caution turn into an anxiety formation, unquote. She, uh, later on in the article, points this out. There is a class element in the public debate. It's been, it's been there the whole time, but it's getting worse, and few in public life are acting as if they're sensitive to it. Our news professionals the past three months have made plenty of room for medical professionals warning of the illness. Good. We needed it. It was news. They are not now paying an equal degree of sympathetic attention to those living the economic story. And that's an excellent point she makes. In fact, uh, the media has presented a front that, that seems to demonize those on the economic side of this debate. If you want to work, you're not thinking about society at large. You know, you're, you're not thinking about the well-being of your neighbor. And all this does is polarize us further. It politicizes life in general. The common good should be everybody's aim, and that common good is decided by the experts, not the common citizen. And if we ask for an audience or, or to protest, we're the dissidents, and we need to be dealt with. And, and on social media, there's now this outcry, a, a type of virtue signaling, that if I have friends who voice an opinion about the working class, the, the, the business owners who want to reopen, they must be unfriended and they must be silenced. <laughs> and even Facebook has taken measures to censor any information deemed false or detrimental to the public that is in opposition to the experts' data and current restrictions to help them stem this pandemic. It's even gone as far as the governor of Pennsylvania, Tom Wolf, Because he stated that those who push back against the current restrictions are, quote, this is his word, cowards. How can you generalize a whole portion of society that is truly hurting in a real way as cowards? Before all of this, the divide was about the working class, wasn't it? Making sure that, that the middle class was strong and now... The same politicians who have stood for the worker call those same workers cowards. Irony is too mild a word to describe that. Perhaps hypocrisy? Now take, take this further observation by Noonan in her article. Quote, something else is true about those pushing back. They live life closer to the ground and pick up other damage. Everyone knows the societal costs in the abstract. Domestic violence, child abuse. Here's something concrete. In Dallas this week, police received a tip and found a six-year-old boy tied up by his grandmother and living in a shed. The child told police he'd been sleeping there since school ended. For this corona thing, he said. According to the uh, arrest affidavit, he was found standing alone in a pitch-black shed in a blue storage bin with his hands tied behind his back. The grandmother and her lover were arrested on felony child endangerment charges. The Texas Department of Family Protective Service said 
Calls to its abuse hotline have gone down since the lockdowns because teachers and other professionals aren't regularly seeing children. A lot of bad things happen behind America's closed doors. The pandemic has made those doors thicker. And even to the point now that activists for the environment have thought to mobilize and capitalize on the coattails of this virus because after all, look at what the quarantine has given us and the planet. A chance to rest and to revitalize and to heal. Because it all sounds great, doesn't it? But will the new normal that most of these activists um, that are calling for do more for the collective or will it rob us of the liberty that we that we have that, that we have fought for and continue to fight for so dearly is compassion now become partisan does it belong only to one side or to one class and i'm not suggesting that the issue of the pandemic is not a real threat it is and we do what we can to protect ourselves and our families but let's ask this question too how do we protect our families if our livelihoods are forcibly taken from us? And while the stimulus checks are very much appreciated, let's, let's also ask, where is the money coming from? It's being printed. It has no value. It might as well be monopoly money. And even though we can still use it, its value is manufactured. So for now, sure, we can use it. But the money is being printed. My goodness gracious, if I had a printer here at home, I could print as much money as I want. What's the difference? Oh, because the Fed is printing it. They're putting their stamp on it, so it has value. The very things that, that Glub points out in his essay that, that lead a nation closer and closer to collapse are right now being exercised by our very own government. And it's all in the name of the common good. And so, how much more shall we give from the citizenry for the common good? What laws are we willing to accept? What restrictions are we glad to keep furthering, even if, even in, in this post-pandemic new normal that we're all waiting for? Will we, like those empires of the past, all take the plunge over the cliff, or will we stand our ground for the liberty we hold so dear, never forgetting that we are a, a, a part of one race and, and, and that that one race needs to continue to further the principles of brotherhood, charity, and reconciliation. We don't get there only by human ingenuity, by new ideas. We get there by acknowledging that we need the God who has promised us a new world where sin, depravity, and darkness no longer exist, or the lust for power that comes with them. So long as we live in a world where power and control exists, even if they are used for the altruistic end of the collective, these few who chant for the saving of the planet will always seek to silence those who oppose them, giving way to an inevitable state of tyranny. This is the process that has already begun. It's already begun. 
And, 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 and the process starts when those on the side of power demonize a group of people in order to galvanize his or, 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 or her own supporters that their mission must also be to demonize and silence that group of troublemakers over there. Those who are not just deplorable, but now are cowards and uncaring. Noonan ends her article with this thought. When you are reasonable with people and show them respect, they will want to respond in kind. But when they feel those calling the shots are being disrespectful, they will push back hard and rebel even in ways that hurt them. This is no time to make our divisions worse. The pandemic is a story not only about our health, but our humanity. The truth about our existence lies in the fact that we're all created equal. Each and every one of us. And this also includes those who are also suffering due to the virus. Those family members who have lost loved ones or who are now in a hospital bed grappling with the reality of losing their lives, potentially, or how their loved ones will go on without them there. In all of this mess, we must purpose within ourselves not to lose our compassion. And we must further purpose within ourselves not to lose our humanity. Yeah, there's an enemy out there. There is a true battle of good and evil being fought, and, and we must choose a side. But this particular crisis isn't the battle, isn't the end battle, the end game that we're fighting. The battle is more subtle, but it's ever more real. It's about losing ourselves, losing our humanity. It's about recognizing that the truth of our existence is about redemption, not in convention. Let us do good to all and for all, but never at the expense of human liberty. The good God that created us guarantees humanity by his own act of being willing to send us his son, Jesus, to give his life for our salvation, that life is precious enough to die for. And this is why we can hope and be assured that the solution we're searching for is soon to come. That's how precious each one of our lives is. So, hope. Hope, because very soon, the promise God made to us about a new world is soon to come. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to The Truth Reel. 
If you want to subscribe to our podcast, you can do it where all podcasts are available. Also visit us at our website, truthreel.transistor.fm. Again, that's truthreel.transistor.fm. And if you're interested in donating to the cause of the refugees, please go to liveforone.com. That's liveforone.com. Join us as we continue to help our brothers and sisters, especially during this crisis under the COVID-19 pandemic.